Okay, by uh, my watch it's about 20 after, so we're going to start. And I'd like to welcome you to this session on cultural intelligence. And um, I feel a little bit um, the odd man out here. I'm not medical, and uh, my wife is. She's a PhD nurse practitioner for pediatrics, and um, she got called for jury duty, so she couldn't come this week. Um, and I am here as a, an ethicist and a, a researcher and uh, presenting on a topic that um, impacts all of us in some way uh, and yet is not directly medical. So I hope that you can find relevance and certainly um, I'm hoping that uh, from you I will learn some things about cultural intelligence today as well. Um, I have to say up front that I am not primarily a cultural intelligence speaker. Uh, and so it's been interesting for me to look through the literature and begin to put th some things together that actually have helped me a lot over the last several months um, to focus on some things that I had learned, but I had no package to put them in. And so I'm hoping this morning that some of the things that we go over uh, will be a benefit to you in the same way. Um, the other problem I have since last night is that our speaker last night was incredibly articulate. And it seems that we have one of two problems. Either he saw my notes and elaborated on them to make them so much better than I have them, or else uh, somehow he was channeling or I was channeling him when I put this together uh, and missed some pieces. But um, anyway, those of you who were here last week or last, last night um, and heard the presentation in the plenary uh, will see a lot of similarities between what was said last night and some of what I'm going to be saying today. Cultural intelligence is essentially an intelligence, and Dr. David Livermore, who has probably published more on it than any other single person, um, takes uh, a great deal of time to present the fact that it is an intelligence. What we mean by an intelligence is it's a way of assimilating, understanding, and reprocessing information in order to take that and make better decisions. So if you do an IQ test, they give you a bunch of information and they see how well you can process that and draw conclusions that demonstrate that you have facility or intelligence in manipulating information. Emotional intelligence, another new intelligence that's come onto the scene, is about how well you're able to process emotions, your own and others, and use those in order to enhance the relationship and the effectiveness of what's happening. Cultural intelligence in the same way, according to Dr. Livermore, is an intelligence that allows you to take cultural information, transfer that into a situation, and produce a new way of interacting or functioning within a culture that is more helpful, more holistic, and a better use of the information that's available to you. Um, one of the things that uh, we will look at here, if I can get this working right, um, is that I'm going to take and uh, build a little bit off of Livermore's work and uh, not repeat what he said. So if this is interesting to you, I would suggest that you buy one of several of his books. The one that I have used the most is The Cultural Intelligence Difference. And um, get one of those and look at them. They're very, very helpful. What I'm going to be focusing on today is how to use primary research in order to enhance your cultural intelligence. Um, I believe that research is, a, is a, a technique that is underutilized in ministry. I've been in ministry for a long time now, and when I bumped into the use of research in ministry, I realized that for a long time, and still to a great degree, ministries are making decisions on their best guess. A good decision depends on good data. If you have incorrect data and you're making a decision then you are going to make a poor decision. Not because you're a bad decision maker, but because the information that you have is not accurate. And in this day and age, the capacity or the ability to do qualitative and quantitative research and analyze it quickly and easily is so well enhanced that I really believe that in every ministry organization there should be one or more people who are dedicated to acquiring the information needed for leadership to make informed decisions. And so we're going to look at primary research and primary research approaches to enhance cultural intelligence. The reason for primary research is because you can go and look up somebody else's research, but even if you go on Google right now, that information is already old. If you get your own information that was collected yesterday and you continue to do that every month or every six months, then your data is 
far fresher than anything else you can get. Primary data is the best way to do research. And I'm you know, just going to state that categorically for you. If you don't agree, we can talk about it during the Q&A. Um, and so as we move forward, we're going to start to look at the four drives, or the four CQ components that Livermore identifies. The first one is CQ drive, or uh, uh, intelligence, uh, cultural intelligence drive. The drive is really your motivation or how badly you want this. Now, everybody says, in this cultural situation, we want this project or program to succeed. But there are competing drives. It's not the only drive that you're dealing with. You have the drive to succeed. You have the drive to look good. You have the drive to please the donors back home. You have the drive to please the people that you're working with. You have the drive to fulfill things in a timely way that's sometimes out of sync with the culture. So there are a lot of other drives that compete with your cultural intelligence drive or your CQ drive. I can remember when I was in Haiti and I was the director of education and we were building a high school. It was a very small high school in a rural area that people had to travel 80 miles in order to go to high school, which meant most of the kids never did. They never went to secondary school. So we were putting this secondary school in and the local education people insisted that we have big classrooms, not this big, but relatively big, 20 by 30. We had enough money to build two 20 by 30 classrooms or four classrooms that were 20 by 20. And I went with the four classrooms that were 20 by 20 because we wanted more space, more classroom space. From my point of view, we needed to have something that was the best bang for the buck. And so that's what we did. And it was a failed project because the people said the classrooms were too small. They never used the classrooms. They would rather have the kids sitting outside under a tree than in those stuffy little classrooms. And I can understand it. They look good on paper. In real life, they were too small. We have a lot of drives that compete. And very often, the drive that takes over is not our CQ drive. That's low on our priority. So the first question you have to ask yourself is, how much do I want this project to succeed in this cultural context? And the second question we have to ask, and there's only one right answer to this question, is how aware am I of my own lack of knowledge? If you think you know everything, you're going to fail. So the first place that you have to start is by saying, I don't know what I need to know. The research skill to help you identify and build your CQ drive is self-assessment. And there are three questions, maybe more, that you should ask yourself. The first one is, do I talk or do I listen? And I guess you can guess the right answer here, the one that you want to hear. Do I propose solutions or do I hear solutions? That's a huge skill set. Hearing solutions is something that we from the West do not do very well. Do I try to impress or do I try to learn? Those three questions and how you answer them will help to shape and form your CQ drive. If you say, I want to be a listener, I want to hear solutions, and I want to learn, that raises your CQ drive. Now, can anybody propose another question that you would like to add to that? Your self-assessment questions. You only got a couple seconds to answer here. I don't see no hand shooting up, so we'll move on. If you think of something later, you can. There is a principle called the rule of thirds, and I think this helps us a lot with understanding our CQ drive. There are three roles you will play in a cross-cultural situation. One is the learner, two is the trader, and three is the leader. Which one do you think we want to jump to first? No, we want to jump to the leader first. We all want to be leaders. How many times have you gone to the field and you are trying to lead before you've even got your feet down on the ground? You're telling people what to do, how to do it, where to go. I mean, I've done research work in 55 countries, and I still catch myself failing to be the learner. The first third of the time that you are wherever you're going to be, whether it's three years or three days, needs to be dedicated to being a learner. So if I'm going to be in a country for three weeks, my first week, I can only be a learner. 
And if I restrict myself to the role of learner, my CQ drive rises high. The second week, I continue to be a learner, but now I can be a trader. I can begin to swap ideas. This is how I would do it in my culture. How would you do it in yours? And that dialogue makes us traders. We begin to swap ideas with people from the indigenous culture. And so we become a learner first, which we have to do for three-thirds of our time, wherever we're going to be. Then we become a trader, which we can do for two-thirds of our time. And after we have been there for two-thirds of our time, we become a leader. We can begin to propose ideas that are new, that are outside of the box, that have never been tried in that culture before. So we need to understand these three roles and the rule of thirds. Mm, my mouth is really dry. Do you have a water bottle? Is the water bottle there? Yep, that's it. Can you bring it, please? Thanks. Okay, any questions? Okay, the second uh, domain in um, cultural intelligence is CQ knowledge. And there's a question that we have to ask ourselves is how much do I know about this culture? I think that before you go to any culture, you're responsible to read the history of that culture, understand the language of that culture, understand where that language came from, what language stream does it, de is it derived from, the kind of political history, the recent political history, when have they had their last election, what form of government do they use, what is the education system, you can look at the population of the country, the split between age groups, um, and all of that data you should learn, but that's not really what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is do you know the culture? And the answer is always no, I really don't understand everything I need to know about the culture. It's extremely important for us to acquire the kinds of research skills here that will help us learn about the culture as quickly as possible. You don't have a lot of time to learn about the culture. In fact, if you're going to be there for three days, you got one day. If you're going to be there for three weeks, you got a week. And we need to learn about the culture before we begin to propose strategies. And so qualitative research is the quickest and easiest way to learn about the culture. I remember when we were doing a qualitative research week training in Africa, and one of the ministry leaders that was there came up to me after at the end of the week, and he said, this has been an amazing week for me. He said, it has helped me so much understand ministry in Africa. And I'm like, we did a week talking about qualitative research and practicing focus groups and talking about how to design them and how to do interviews, how to analyze the data. How did that change your understanding of ministry? He said, brother, let me tell you this. And Africans always use analogies. He said, doing ministry in Africa is like driving down an African road at night. He said, there are ditches on both sides. They don't even run straight. There are big rocks in the road. There are holes in the road. There are trees in the road. There are animals in the road. And so you pick your way very carefully down this road so you don't damage your ministry, which is the vehicle you're moving with. He says, this research thing is amazing. It's like turning on the headlights. He said, it doesn't change the road, but you can see what's in the road. And I thought that was the best reason that I had ever heard to do research. It turns on the lights, the aha moment. Most of the time, research doesn't tell you anything that you didn't already know, but it shows you what you knew that is true. It shows you what you know that actually has a base in the reality that you're in. And so research is extremely important. Focus groups can be used very effectively to gather consensus data. In other words, if you take representative samples of focus groups, elderly people, younger people, men, women, and focus groups that are comprised of only men, of only women, only elderly, only younger, um, leaders in the community, servers in the community, upper class, lower class, middle class, if you can do nine focus groups, and they I figure that by the time you organize them and do them and look at the data, it takes about three hours per focus group. So nine times three is a little less than 40 hours, which gives, is a week's worth of work. If you can do nine focus groups, you will have all the information you need to know. Now, I would suggest that you start with two research questions, which isn't the same as the questions you ask the group. But if you know focus group theory, you can understand this. Otherwise, study focus group theory. But two research questions. One is what are the mistakes you've seen other expats made when they came in and tried to do ministry here? 
and you'll get lots of stories, and you're going to find there's a high convergence of data. People make the same mistakes time after time after time after time, exactly the same mistakes. And you will make them too if you don't know what they are. The second research question is, what people have you seen who have been most successful coming cross-culturally into here and leaving a positive impact behind them? And again, you'll hear stories. You'll hear them raise up sometimes exactly the same people from different groups saying this is the right way to do it, and you'll find convergence there again. That there are certain right ways to do it in certain cultures. There are people who have come in and been really successful, had high uh, cultural intelligence and high CQ, and they've been able to be successful. You can be too. So draw your conclusions based on that data and then do interviews with two people that are national leaders and say, I did these focus groups with people. These are the conclusions I've drawn about what failures to avoid and what successes to emulate. What do you think? And they will correct your misinterpretation if you didn't understand the data fully, and they will affirm it where you've nailed it on the head. Those two little pieces will advance your um, your knowledge, your, your, your cultural knowledge immensely in a very short period of time. You can either learn it by making your own mistakes or you can learn it from the mistakes of others. Turn the headlights on. How much do you know? We used to laugh when I was in Haiti because for the first six months people come and they say, I know what you should do. Anybody lived overseas and heard that? I mean, every team that comes in, they know what you should be doing. They know how you should be doing it because they're fresh eyes on the ground. And obviously you're not doing it right or you'd be a whole lot more successful than you are. After six months, anybody that stays that long says, there is no way that anybody can figure out what should be done here. It's just crazy. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. And so for six months, they muddle through that. And then after that, if they, if they last that long and keep moving forward, they say, let's figure out what to do together. Now, we all want to try and jump down to that third stage of let's figure out what to do together. The fact is, it's just like culture shock. You can't move. You have to go through these steps. You're going to go through these steps. So listen to yourself. Listen to yourself telling people right after you got onto the ground what they should be doing. And when you hear that and you can start to move through that, then you'll start to say, wow, I don't know how anybody gets anything done here. Listen to yourself because once you've processed that, then you can move to the place, let's join hands and work together, which is the kind of attitude that you're going to have to have if you're going to have high CQ knowledge. Anybody, any comments, questions? Is this making sense? Okay, good. At least they're not. In Bulgaria, they nod by going like this. It's really confusing. Because uh, you say, do you all understand? And they go, and it's like, wow, okay. And then you have to remember. Okay. Third domain that we have to deal with is CQ strategy. And the question here is, where do shared interests merge? It doesn't matter how different cultures are. There are shared interests. Often they are around, I want to do better. Often they are around, I want my family to be healthier. Often they are around, I want my community to be more cohesive. And so there are always shared interests. And as we move forward through merged interests, we're able to develop the kind of strategies that display cultural intelligence. I remember when um, a nurse came to Haiti. She was a, a retired nurse. She had a good bit of money, so she didn't need to raise support, which was nice for her. The rest of us did. And um, she came in, and she started working in Port-au-Prince with um, other medical people. She just volunteered. She went, saw what they did. She spent six months working in one of the national hospitals. Saw so all the mistakes that people made, all the good things they did. And then... Through her contacts at the National Hospital, she was offered a position to go up to a small town in the north of Haiti where the government had a clinic. They had a doctor that showed up every once in a while, and they had a nurse that came in twice a week. And they said, would you like to go there because we'll let you run that clinic? And so she said, yeah, that sounded like a good idea. So she, she went up to the village and she, you know, got herself a little house, you know, and happened to be 150 years old and needed some repairs, which she was able to get done. Uh, and then she met with the leaders 
of the community. She met with the men leaders and then she met with the women leaders of the community because her goal was to help kids in that village to become healthier, better health practices and the whole, whole, all the things that go with that. So she said, basically asked one question. In order for this clinic to be successful, what do we need to do first? And she was thinking something like vaccinate the kids or something like that, okay? So she was, you know, sort of thinking that way. The consensus opinion was that the clinic would never be successful until there was a better path to the clinic. The clinic had been built on the edge of town, and it was always muddy or rainy or slippery going to the clinic. And people said, you know, we just don't like to go there because the path isn't good. They fully expected her to say, okay, well, we'll bring in a cement mixer from the United States and a work team, and we're going to put it together. She said to them, I don't have anything that can make the path better. What do you have? Again, it goes back to what he said last night. It's not about a needs assessment. It's about an asset assessment. What assets did they have? So they put their heads together and they said, well, there's an old sugar mill just outside of town that we've been taking bricks from when we need it. We can get a bunch of rubble and bricks from there and we can build a path. And so the whole village got together and they built a path. It took them a month and a half, but they had a path that was the best sidewalk in the whole of the town that went up to this clinic. So they all got together and celebrated the completion of the sidewalk. She said, okay, now what do we need to do if we're going to make this clinic successful? She said, I just got some vaccines in, trying to drop a hint. And they said to her, we can't use this clinic until it's painted. And she said, well, I don't have any paint. There's no, no paint. What are you going to do about this? So a week later, one of the elders from the community came back and she said, we've gotten together and we all have little bits of paint left over from painting our house. So if we put it in a big big uh, five-gallon drum, we can put it all together and see what color it makes. Uh, fortunately, it made a cocky mud color, which didn't show the rain splatters when the mud splattered up on the building. And so they all mixed up their paint, they painted the building, and now they had a path to the clinic, and they had a painted clinic, and she said, now what should they do? She said, we, they said we should bring our kids and get them vaccinated. That was a CQ strategy. And that's exactly what we mean. What's the research skill that I'm advising for you to develop CQ strategies? I'm su suggesting that you use a TOES or SWOT analysis. Normally we call it a SWOT analysis, and if you're familiar with it, it's a business process, and it's badly used most of the time because it just sort of becomes a report that sits on somebody's desk and they never implement it. But it's a really good way to do research that is actionable. And so I always think that from a research point of view, it allows you to do research that's actionable. The reason I would suggest you go with TOES is because people are more likely to talk about the external threats and the external opportunities than they are to be forthcoming about their internal strengths and weaknesses. And so if you start with, what's going on here that can make this program go bad, make it fail? They're going to start t telling you the things that would make this program fail, the threats, the external threats. If you say, then, what are the opportunities for us to make this program more than we had ever thought? And they begin to think that through. They'll come up with some opportunities that nobody had ever put two and two together and come up with four before. And so doing those two will start. And then you can say, well, what strengths can you bring? What assets do you have that you can bring to the table so that we can optimize these opportunities to make this a better program than we thought it could be in the first place? And then you say, well, what weaknesses do we have that are going to undermine this program if we don't address them, if we're not aware of them? Once this data has come together and a group of people sit down and look at it, usually it's pretty obvious what the right thing to do is. It's pretty obvious. That data will help people make decisions that has a huge amount of buy-in. Just like Lois did in Haiti. She sat down and said, what are the opportunities? The opportunity was the broken down sugar mill. We can scavenge from that. What are the opportunities? The opportunities are the threat. Uh, what are the threats? The threat is when it rains and it gets muddy, we can't get to the clinic. And so the opportunities and the threats were where they started. Strengths and weaknesses weren't addressed until after opportunities and threats were already begun to maximize and the community had already come together. Now let me finish the story for Lois. 
By the time Lois left to go back to the States six years later, the community had banded together and built her a house on the beach. It was the biggest house in town. There wasn't a single foreign dollar in it. And it was so cute that by the time she left, they were able to recruit an Australian doctor to come in and be there full time. So they replaced the nurse, the American nurse, with an Australian doctor, and that doctor brought his family there. And that clinic and that community had the best health care in the northern region of Haiti. Why? Because of CQ strategies. CQ strategies allow you to deliver strategies that are embedded in the win-win ideal of we both need to benefit, we both need to see what we can bring to the table that where our common interests lie. So if we move forward then, how comfortable will you be developing CQ strategies? Well, to be a CQ strategist, you have to be a mediator, and mediators are never stars. They're the person that makes everybody's life miserable because they don't give either party what they want. In the end, if a, CQ, if a mediator or a CQ strategist is successful, both parties get some of what they want, and they agree to a common strategy, but nobody got really what they wanted. They never got all of what they wanted. So mediators aren't stars. If you're going to be a CQ strategist, you're not going to be a star. You're going to have to give, let other people take the credit for the work that you did. And if you can do that, you'll be successful. You are the bridge. That means that you can't be comfortable in the national culture, because if you become so embedded in the national culture that that's the only way you look at the world, if you adopt their worldview entirely, then you have nothing to offer them anymore because you see see the same opportunities that they do. Nor can you stay embedded in your home culture, because if you do, you'll always be critical of every suggestion that they come up with. What you have to do is be the bridge, where you've got one foot in both cultures. You're neither one nor the other. You're neither fish nor fowl. You're a both and. Very uncomfortable position to be in. The second thing is that you have to listen to everyone involved. And listening is not a natural skill for most of us. I know it's not a natural skill for me. When we do uh, research trainings around the, around the world and people say, well, who makes the best researchers? I say, well, the easiest answer is to tell you who makes the worst researchers. And they say, who makes the worst researchers? I say, pastors. They say, why do pastors make the worst researchers? Because pastors have never been asked a question that they don't have an answer to. <laughs> a pastor will never say, I don't know. They've got to have an answer. And that's not a good research quality. To have a good research quality, you have to start by saying, I don't know. You are the expert. I'm not. You need to know what other people know. And the only way to get that is to stop talking and start listening. So you have to listen to everyone involved. And thirdly, you have to realize it isn't about your success. It's about their success. You may not ever have your name on anything. And you may not even be remembered. It will be the people that were in that group that you helped bring together that will be the heroes of that successful project. So you don't get credit. Well, the good thing about it is Jesus addresses this in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if you do what you do before men and you receive your reward, then you get nothing from God. But if you do it in secret and nobody knows what you did, when you stand before your Father in heaven, he is going to say, well done. So we will get our reward sooner or later if we're behind the scenes. But a CQ strategist is a behind-the-scenes person, not an upfront star. And so you have to ask yourself the question, do I want to be a CQ strategist? The fourth domain that Livermore tells us that we have to deal with is CQ action. CQ action is implementing the both-and solutions that we've developed through our strategic approach to cultural intelligence. So when we do this, we have to think, how do we not do an either-or, but how do we bring two sometimes very diverse ideas together, focused on a common goal, and in implementing and including different methodologies that come from some that come from one culture and some that come from another, so that it's something that neither of them would ever have come up with independently, but together it makes perfect sense. That's what a CQ action is about. So what's the research skill here? Well, here's where you're going to get to actually do a little bit of work yourselves. 
but it's developing outcome tracking. I am extremely passionate about outcome tracking. I was the director of a faith-based nonprofit ministry that served homeless population um, in the 90s. And um, that was when they were all coming out, United Way, and all the grants were asking for outcomes. And so for homelessness, they're saying, well, everybody's either an alcoholic or a drug addict or they're crazy, so they were going to give us mental health or substance abuse outcomes. And I'm like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. Those are pathologies that exist within homelessness, but they are not the causes of homelessness. And just remediating those has, has been shown time and time again to fail because those people relapse and they're back on the street again. So I said, let's find out what causes people to be on the street in the first place. And let's find out that when they get off the street, why do they go back? So we did interviews with homeless people, and basically it came out that there were eight factors that they said caused them to return to the street. So we, we developed a very short quiz, and I didn't actually know what I was doing at the time, in order to assess which of those factors were the barriers that were most difficult for them to deal with, and we began to develop that. Over three years, we collected enough data that we actually validated the instrument. It took a long time because, again, we didn't know what we were doing. We worked with the University of Nebraska to validate it. It became a validated outcome indicator for homelessness and the remediation of homeless services. But it, that didn't matter that much. What happened was it was a complete change in the way we did our work. Now case managers, yes, they still had to track 15-minute increments of face-to-face time with homeless people, but now their service to homeless people was about preparing them to emerge into the community by dealing with the barriers to their living as a residential part of the community instead of a homeless part of the community. It completely changed their excitement because they could see the scores change week by week as they re-administered the survey every week. People themselves, homeless people, I've got homeless friends, formerly homeless friends now who've been housed for 15 years that still every month do the same survey so they can see where they're at. Because it's it's a warning. Now, the side effect of that was that we really loved doing what we were doing because we weren't just handing out meals and putting people into beds and running them through and then seeing them back on the street. But we actually knew what was happening in their lives. And we realized that when they came back in the second and third time, their intake scores were better than they had been the previous time. Not high enough to keep them housed, but better than they were. And we knew that as we continued to move them forward, we got to the place where when they would be discharged, we could tell them where they were going to be with 85% accuracy six months post-discharge. We could say, you're going to be back on the street or you're going to still be housed, depending on their scores. What happened in addition to that was we were able to demonstrate to donors how we did our work. Our budget went from just under a million to 4.5 million in less than six years. Why? Because we knew what we were doing. We knew what difference we were making. And I was convinced at that time that every ministry organization should understand what difference they're making and be able to quantify it. That's really what Metrics Research Group does, is we help usually multinational nonprofit organizations identify and quantify the outcomes so that they can do better work, have more satisfaction in their staff, and that they are going to be able to demonstrate to donors not just what they've done, but what, how what they have done has made a difference in people's lives. So, simple way to do that, outcome tracking that you can do, is to identify the groups that are impacted by the action you do. So I'm going to give you a, a scenario here, and I want you to call out groups that you think would be impacted. So, your project is to go into a village and vaccinate all the children in that village. If you are successful in vaccinating all the children in that village, What groups will have benefited from your successful project? Just call out what groups you think might have benefited. Children, okay, that's one. Children. Parents, yeah. The health department. The schools. Who? Churches, yeah, the churches. The community as a whole, okay? So we've got at least six groups in which there are outcomes. Now, Let me say to you, just make this suggestion, that most people, when they think about the outcome and what happened, and and there's actually one other group, let me give you one other group, the people that went in and did that ministry. 
their lives are impacted too, aren't they? The people that funded that exercise, their lives are impacted too, right? So we've actually got eight groups, okay? We've got eight groups that are affected by this successful program. Most organizations, when they think about their outcomes, would think about one group, the children. And it's almost impossible to quantify what happens to those children because you would have to track them longitudinally over a long period of time. But some of those other groups are not that hard to say what the impact is and to track it. And so it's important for you to think of the range of groups that are positively impacted by the ministry you do, by the action you take, by the CQ action you take. Quit shutting off on me here. Uh, and so you need to determine the changes that commonly occur. So the first stage is what are the groups? Then what happens in those groups? And I'm going to ask you to split into small groups here. Just turn around where you are. And I'm going to give you three minutes to come up, pick one of those groups. It could be children, parents, churches, whatever you want, volunteers, whoever was doing it. Pick one of those groups and, and, and pick at least four or five things that you think would be observable in that group because of this successful project. So you've got three minutes. Okay, um, uh, pick a group leader who is going to report uh, the three changes that occurred in the group that you're talking about. You've got another 35 seconds to pull your report together. Okay, when you're ready, stop talking. Good job. You guys are great. I wish you were all on my team. Okay. Um, okay, so I want some volunteers just to, you know, say what group you identified and the three things. Yep. We took the group of parents. Okay. Said that they would be less worried about their kids. Okay. Okay. Okay, good. So three positive impacts on parents. Yeah. Somebody else? Yep. We also took parents where we did a different program. Okay. Um, like if the parents, whatever they do in their community, whether they work or whatever, mm -hmm. that, that would not impact on their ability to work if they're just okay. sick. Right, good. That's great. And then um, that also that they would share the good news to other parents. Okay. Great. Okay. Yeah. Well, those are two really good ones. Okay, great. Thanks. Anybody else at the further back? Yeah. We talked about schools and the fact that there would be more regular attendance. Right. The children would be more alert to mm -hmm. learn. Teachers would be encouraged to 
because the children are there more regularly. Parents would be encouraged when they see their children making progress. Right. Right, there'd be few, fewer epidemics to close the school down, too. Yeah, somebody at the very back, bold. Yeah, okay, there you go. So we talked about, like, public health uh, department. Okay. And how we were just saying they, that they use sciences that maybe we're going towards that, like right. consequences of the lack of immunizations and put that, those resources to other areas. Mm-hmm. Um, other organizations can see the improvement that they're making in the country in healthcare and then maybe be motivated to give more um, to help in other areas and uh, just generally teach. Okay, super. Okay, so you've got the idea. It's actually not that hard. And if you actually sat down in a community where a, a project had been done, people would themselves, they'd come and tell you. And actually, what, when we, usually when we try and identify the outcomes and the indicators, we'll talk to people in the head office, and they think they know what's happening. But then we go and talk to the actual beneficiaries of their ministry. And there's a whole range of things that are going on that the people in the head office had never even considered are happening. Listening to people who have been blessed by what you do tell their stories will show you what God is doing in their lives that you never even thought of. And sometimes those things are far more important for the donors and for the people who are actually carrying out the action than some of the things that we thought were important. So it's important to determine what changes commonly occur and then select measurable, observable indicators. So out of some of those, there are indicators. So let's pick on the families telling other families. Going to a selected sample of families and finding out how many other families who did not have their kids vaccinated they've told about. You can find that quite easily. It's not a a huge amount of work. You could do a couple of indicators for each group and track that across every time you did the project. This gives you the opportunity to reach out to a lot of other people. Some people might not care about medicine, but they care about education. So your educational outcomes are significant for them because their passion is education, and you're showing that this vaccination medical project actually has a positive impact on education. Now you've got somebody that's got education dollars in their pocket that will give it to you for your medical project because it has an educational outcome. We need to start to think, how do we measure success? Because action that has no measurable way of telling whether it's successful or not is action for action's sake. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we could hear the gospel. Jesus died on the cross to transform people's lives. That's a big difference. It's not about sharing the gospel. It's about the Holy Spirit coming into people's lives through the gospel to transform their lives. And we don't measure transformation. That's what God measures. And we say, well, only God can measure it. But let me tell you, if the secular sociologist can measure happiness, we can measure everything that God does in our lives. And so the world of scientific assessment has moved to the place where there's almost no outcome that can't be quantified. Okay, well, we'll move on. That's so much for my little spiel on research. Um, so what's your position in the game of getting things done? So now well, let's use a football analogy since we're back in football season. So here you are. You're, you're out there in action, but you are not always going to be a player. Mostly what you're going to be is one of these four things, and they're all needed, and you may have to put on all four outfits. The manager. In most cross-cultural situations, there is an assumption that you've come from the West, therefore you have limitless resources. Not true. You don't have limitless resources. And so you have to manage the resources well. You're stewards of those resources for the sake of the kingdom. So you have to be a manager, the same as a manager on a football team. there's, There's spending caps. There's caps on who they can hire, how much money they can pay, and so on. So all of those things are part of the manager. Then there's the coach who sees players that are struggling, doing what they do, and helps them get better. Coaches them how to do whatever it is that they're doing in a, in a better way or moves players from one place to another so that their strengths are optimized. A lot of times we just sort of leave things in status quo and let people muddle along and hope for the best because, you know, God bless them. You know, there they are. 
No, that's not there they are. We need to be, you know, I mean, this is God's time and God's money. We need to be putting the right people in the right place. We have to be coaches. And sometimes you have to be a cheerleader, which may mean putting on a funny outfit and cheering everybody up when they're feeling down or being optimistic that we can still win this game when we're 20 points down. But we can be cheerleaders because we know what the end of the story is. And we should be the ones that encourage those that are discouraged. And then we need to be a play-by-play commentator. The play-by-play commentator doesn't, make it doesn't comment on the game for the players on the field. Doesn't comment on the game for the coaches. Doesn't even comment on the game for the, player, or the, uh, the people in the stands. Commentators commentate for people who can't be there. Who are the people that can't be there in your project? The donors, the head of the organization that sends you, the people back home, the families back home. And if you can communicate accurately what worked, what didn't work, how the play is going, what's happening, and send regular reports, those people are engaged in the game. Do you know where most of football's money comes from? Not from the people that buy tickets to go into the stands. It comes from advertising the play-by-play commentators offer. Do you know where most of your money is going to come from? It's going to depend on your play-by-play commentation. Can you tell people the story about what's going on and why when something fails, it can be corrected, and when it succeeds, we can see why it succeeded? That's how we have to put cultural intelligence in our tool bag. And so I hope today that this has been helpful for you and that you understand that there are four domains that Dr. Livermore tells us we need to pay attention to. There's the CQ drive, the CQ knowledge, the CQ strategy, and the CQ action. Okay, we've got five minutes for Q&A. Anybody, any questions? No. Either, either you are perfectly, uh, have acquired all the knowledge here, or I've just baffled you. Yes, back there. Okay, yeah. Um, are you familiar with any of the processes like the grieving process? Yeah, okay. Um, the grieving process, uh, cross-cultural cross um, uh, culture shock are all processes. And this is also a process. It's a process that you have to go through. Because when you land, you do think you know a whole bunch of stuff that people there obviously are missing. You're seeing stuff that they're missing. It's just that you don't have enough information to see everything. And so you will go through that process. Some of what I've suggested, particularly in the CQ knowledge stage of acquiring information, will get you information that will help you move through that stage more quickly. And then the next stage of saying, wow, nobody can do anything with this, unless you know the stories of the people who have been successful in crossing that cultural divide and producing something that neither culture could have produced individually. Until you get that information, you're not ready to move to the last stage. And so that's why you have to go through those. You have to acquire the information that allows you to move from one level to the next. Now, I believe that if you intentionally acquire that information, you can move through it very quickly, in the same way that culture shock can be overcome in less than a week if you know the process and you engage in it. Same with the grieving process or any other process. So processes do have stages, and typically you can engage with those stages in order to move through them more quickly. Okay? Does that help? Okay. Somebody else? Yes. Um, yeah. If, if I was taking a short-term team in, I would have... Before the short-term team started doing anything, I would have them sit in on a focus group or two. And if you had eight focus groups running simultaneously, you would, that would mean you'd need to have eight team members that could uh, facilitate them. But learning to facilitate a focus group isn't rocket science. Um, if you had that happening and then everybody sat around at that end of that learning day, and went over that data, drew their conclusions, and then the next morning ran it through the interview process. In one day, you could acquire what would normally take a person a month to learn. 
and some people a year to learn. And so it's, it's about intentionality. Remember that our decisions are only as good as our data. So get your data right. And people come in with a lot of misconceptions. And when they actually hear people talking about what it is they're concerned with, it changes you far more quickly than talking to each other. And that's what most short-term groups do, is they talk to each other. And so it's pooled ignorance rather than engaging with the population that actually lives in that culture. Does that help? Okay. Somebody else? Yes, it's back. Uh, come up and I'll give you a business card and you can email me and I'll give you a reading list. Okay. Okay. Well, I think I don't see any hands. Here's one. Okay, yeah. Um, usually what we will do is we design instruments, um, but any, anything that you've got, I mean, there's instruments out there to measure nearly everything, right? So the ideal is to find one that works for you or maybe two um, and do pre-post testing. So you do it before you've de undertaken any activity, but let's say you were doing a test for parents to see um, their level of confidence in their child's health. Um, and so you can do a pre-test and then six months later you can do a post-test and see if the parent's um, confidence that their child is healthy and has been protected by this vaccination has changed. Um, and once you can start to quantify that with a large enough sample set, it becomes really, it, 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 it is actually research that you can use to um, make the case that what you're doing is, is transforming cultures and lives. Okay? Um, and again, if you're interested in something like that, it's, it's a much longer conversation than 50 minutes. So um, I'd be happy to engage in that conversation with you because it's part of my passion. Thank you very much. God bless you.